invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it up again to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 8 today. Uh, We uh, finished Mark 7 last week, and we'll start in the very next chapter, as is our pattern. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10 today. Deja vu is French for already seen. I don't know any French. I don't even think I know that French, but we've all learned something today. Deja vu is French for already seen, and you know what it is. It's the phenomenon of feeling like you're living through something that you've already seen or you've already lived through before, even when you haven't, even when it's the, the first time. Like You think, maybe you, I dreamed about this, or I feel like I've had this conversation with this person already sometime before. Deja vu is what happens for real for weatherman Phil Connors in the film Groundhog Day. Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? Phil asks of the owner of a bread and breakfast that he keeps waking up in. I don't know, she said, but I can check with the kitchen. Uh, (laughs) Phil Connors in Groundhog Day ends up literally reliving February 2nd, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again until he's nearly driven mad, nearly driven insane, except for a love interest uh, that keeps him from giving up. The irritating bit of the movie, Groundhog Day, if you've seen it, is that when the time loop is eventually broken and and he wakes up on February 3rd, we don't know why. No one tells us how it started. No one tells us how it finished. But what we do know is that by the end of the film, Phil Connors is a different man than he was at the beginning for having lived the same day over and over and over again. What do we do when we come to, maybe not deja vu, but but otherwise repeating events in the Bible. What do we do when we get to those places in the Bible where we go, pretty sure I've read this before. Pretty sure I've seen this already. Do we skip over those events, those scenes, like, like there's some sort of anomaly? Do we, do we assume some sort of mistake in the editing of our Bibles, like someone hit copy and paste in the word processing program in error? Or do we slow down to consider Maybe this is here again on purpose. Maybe I'm seeing this twice for a reason. So we come to such a passage today, Mark chapter 8. It's a familiar scene, nearly identical details, some head-scratching differences to one that we've seen already. It's a second feeding by Jesus of a great multitude from almost nothing at all. Multiplication of a very little bit of food to feed a massive group of people. We've been here already just a couple of chapters ago in Mark chapter 6. In fact, if you just probably turn back one page in your Bible, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30, we've already seen Jesus feed a multitude of many thousands. And now here in Mark chapter 8, he's going to feed another multitude of many uh, many thousands. Is this deja vu all over again? What should we do when we run into scenes like this in Scripture that seem so familiar, maybe even almost identical? As we come to this text today, We're going to see the main idea of Mark chapter 8 is very similar. Mark chapter 8, 1 through 10 is very similar to the main idea of Mark chapter 6, verses 30 and following. That Jesus is the Messiah who who gives sustenance in wilderness, in, in desert places to all who come to Him in dependent faith. That He is able to abundantly care for all needs out of His compassionate care and sovereign power. We're going to see things we've already learned about Jesus all over again. Which leads us to the main idea of this passage of Scripture, that it's worth saying twice. Jesus really is the Messiah for all kinds of people. It's worth saying twice. 
that Jesus really is the Messiah for all kinds of people. And as we look at this very familiar scene, it's a different scene, but it's a familiar scene. My hope and intention is that we'll leave this text of God's Word today having learned that nothing is in the Scriptures by accident. Mark didn't hit copy and paste in, in the wrong space. In fact, he didn't even have copy and paste. So, and that we... And that we so learn that nothing is in Scripture by accident, and also that we do well. It's a good practice of us when we read Scripture to slow down and read with our eyes and our ears and our hearts open all the time. But also, let's leave today, seeing who Jesus is and what He did, what He does for people. Let's leave today with more of Jesus for our own souls today. Let's leave having feasted on Christ yet one more time. And let's leave with a longing for more of Jesus for the souls of those who have yet to know Him. So let's, as you're comfortably able, stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word. Mark 8, verses 1 through 10. We saw in the preceding uh, instance Jesus healing a deaf man by doing weird things, putting His fingers in His ears, spitting, touching His tongue. And all of these Gentile people in the Decapolis says Jesus has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And Mark continues, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit uh, sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, before the crowd. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's worth saying twice, Jesus really is a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ for all kinds of people. The feeding of the 4,000 here in Mark chapter 8, is very similar in some ways, not quite identical, but, but almost nearly parallel to the feeding of the 5,000 just a chapter and a half or so earlier. Why would Mark do this? Why would Mark put, and Mark and Matthew are the only two gospel writers who include these two large multitude feedings in their gospels. Here in Mark 8, uh, we have the feeding of the 4,000. In Matthew chapter 15, we have the feeding of the 4,000. Luke and John seem to leave the second feeding out of their gospels. Each of the gospel writers is trying to point out, draw out different things about Jesus that they feel are necessary for their audience to know and to understand. Mark and Matthew have seen fit to include two nearly identical scenes of Jesus doing a a mighty work for a great crowd. Why? What What is the gospel writer Mark trying to teach us about Jesus through this event in his life? Well, let's look first at why feeding 4,000 is like feeding 5,000. There there are many things in common uh, between these two scenes. Why is feeding the 4,000 like feeding the 5,000? We see very similar connections between this uh, and the passage before in Mark chapter 6. 
First among similarities, there is a great crowd of people coming to Jesus. Jesus' popularity is not slowing down as he continues on in his, uh, in his earthly ministry. His reputation is preceding him. We saw that even last week as Jesus left the region of Galilee to go north to the city and the region of Tyre and Sidon, that even there in that place, a Gentile place, lots of people were following Jesus and coming to him because they knew he was in the area. His, the, there's nothing that, that seems to be stopping or slowing down the spread of who Jesus is and what he's doing. And now here in the Decapolis, the same place that he was, as we saw last week, healing the blind man, uh, a region east of the Sea of Galilee, another sort of Gentile region, still great crowds are coming to Jesus, just like great crowds were coming to him when he fed the 5,000. Similar again to the feeding of the 5,000, we see that Jesus has compassion on the crowd. You may have caught that again. Look back at Mark uh, uh, chapter 6, verse um, Verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus sees a great crowd of people coming to him in the region of Galilee, 5,000 men in total, he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And when, as Mark writes that, saying that Jesus saw them like sheep without a shepherd, Mark is drawing on all of this Old Testament imagery of God who is like a shepherd to his people, of God who will send a shepherd for his people, like in, he, says, he promises in Ezekiel 34. Here it's in Mark chapter 8, verse 2, it's Jesus himself who says, I have compassion on the people. He doesn't say because they're like sheep without a shepherd, but I think we're meant to, I think Mark intends for us to hear the echo of that from just a chapter or so before. Jesus has compassion on these people again. Another point of similarity, we find this crowd of 4,000, like the crowd of 5,000, in a desolate place, as is how the disciples describe it, a wilderness place. You remember the imagery of the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel after they left slavery in Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate place. The word is the same for 40 years and their God cared for them in that place. Again, in Mark chapter 6, uh, we see that, that Jesus and the disciples recognize that as they, uh, as before he feeds the 5,000, that it is a desolate place, a wilderness place, and the people have no bread in the wilderness. And immediately we're taken back to Exodus and that time where the people of Israel were in the wilderness and they had no bread. The same is true here. They're in a desolate place. They have no food. And so Jesus, in addressing the need, does what? Same thing he did before. Asks for what food is available. What do you all have? How many loaves did you bring with you? They have seven loaves. They have a few fish. Jesus also, in Mark chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000, had five loaves and two fish. So there's loaves and fish and loaves and fish. Jesus does the same thing with the crowd that he did with the feeding of the 5,000. He commands them all to sit down. Jesus does the same thing with the food that he did in the previous episode. He blesses the food, probably saying... The, the very common blessing that most uh, Jewish men would say before they eat, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. And then, same thing happens again. He commands the disciples to distribute the food, to set the food before the crowd. And as they eat, we find everyone ate and all were satisfied. In both instances, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, everybody eats and is satisfied, is full. They have all that their bellies can take. And then, 
just like before, leftovers are gathered. A lot of leftovers. Feeding the 4,000 is a lot like feeding the 5,000 in some of these details, some of these aspects of these two events that, that are almost parallel to one another. Not identical, they are parallel, not identical, but parallel. What are we to learn from these similarities? What do we learn about Jesus from these two events that have so much in common? Well, first of all, we learn, because now we've seen it twice, that the disciples of Jesus are not omniscient. They do not know everything, and in some ways, they're still rather dim. They're still rather dense. There are a couple of episodes that will follow the feeding of the 4,000. We'll look at them next Sunday, where we see that the, 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 the disciples are still very slow to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. In Mark 6, verses 35 through 37, the disciples were asked by Jesus to feed the crowd. But they don't know where they're going to be able to get enough money to do this, as though they think Jesus is asking them to, to produce a year or two, two, uh, six months, eight months worth of wages to feed this great crowd. How are we going to do that in this desert place, Jesus? In Mark chapter 8, verse 4, we read it. The disciples asked Jesus again, how can anybody feed these people with bread here in this desert place? We don't know how much time has elapsed between Mark 6, verse 30, and Mark 8, verse 1, uh, and following, but uh, either apparently enough time that the disciples have forgotten what Jesus did, or, I think more likely, the disciples are just, they're a little slow on the uptake here. There's something we can learn about the disciples' lack of omniscience, the fact that they're slow on the uptake. We can learn and apply to ourselves that we're often slow to learn too. We're not all too different from the disciples. I know I'm not. It's important for us not to assume that discipleship in Christ, that following Jesus, that the being obedient to what he calls us to do is easy or immediate. It was not easy or immediate for the disciples to understand who Christ was and what he was intending to do. And here we have in this repeated event with these very many parallel details showing us, at least in one respect, that the disciples are slow on the uptake, reminding us that and maybe we are sometimes too. Maybe it takes me some repetition. Maybe it takes me some returning to basic matters about who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing over and over again in order for me to know him deeply and to follow him consistently. Sometimes we need some repetition. Sometimes we need to learn the same things about Jesus more than once before they really stick, before they really grew, uh, uh, wear a groove in our hearts such that it leaves a lasting impact. We learn that it's not good to assume that discipleship in Christ is easy or immediate. But second, we also learn from this, uh, this, this sort of repeated event or, or similar event that Jesus has compassion, not just any kind of compassion, but a gut-felt, a gut-wrenching compassion for people who are in need, particularly spiritual need. The same word for compassion is used in, in both instances. In the first place, in Mark chapter 6, Mark tells us that Jesus, he says from the third person point of view, Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In Mark chapter 8, Mark records Jesus himself saying, I have compassion on these people. The Greek word, if you remember, it's good to review, one, because it's good to know the word, but also because it's fun to know the word. The word is splanknizomai. Splanknizoma. It comes from the word splankna, which, which is the, the Greek word for, for guts, for intestines, for, for all this bit in the middle here. Inward parts. The kind of compassion that Jesus has and says that he has for the people 
is a gut-felt compassion. It's a, a hurting, it's a love, it's an affection, it's a, 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 a feeling of, of kindness and a desire to care for the people that are in front of him that, that messes with him inside. It's important to remind ourselves that, that Jesus in his incarnation, that the Son of God, as he adds flesh, as he adds humanity to his divinity, adds all of humanity to his divinity, all that it is to be human, including this gut-felt compassion Maybe you feel that way when you see a child in need or a child that is hurting. Like you have this thing driving inside of you that says, I I must do something. I can't do nothing. So Jesus has the same sort of compassion on these people. Observe this this morning. Take note of this this morning. That Jesus has compassion, love, affection, gut-wrenching desire to help the majority who do not know him. There's a crew of 4,000 people in front of Jesus who, who know something of him. They don't know him yet in full. They don't yet understand that he's the Messiah. He hasn't died for sins and been raised from the dead yet. They don't know him in truth. They know that he's a, a wonder worker, a, a performer of miracles, a healer, maybe even a, a good teacher. They don't know yet that he's the Christ. They haven't quite understood that yet, but it doesn't matter. Jesus still has gut-wrenching compassion for these people who don't know him. As I think about this, and I think about where we were last week, when we see Jesus having compassion on this Gentile Syrophoenician woman and her daughter who's afflicted by a demon, and Jesus healing this Gentile man who is deaf and uh, unable to speak clearly, that as Jesus has compassion on these people who are not just far from him, but far from the covenant people of God, I'm, I'm confronted and, and even convicted a little bit again this morning. I need to ask myself, Stephen, is your heart Is your heart tuned to this kind of compassion that Christ has? Being a follower of Jesus, saying you understand Him, saying you know what He's like. Stephen, does your your gut churn for people who don't know Jesus? Does it turn with compassion and, 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 and pity and genuine desire to see their needs met in Christ such that you can't do nothing about it? Jesus has this kind of compassion for the majority of people who do not know Him. Friend, are you far from Jesus today? Do you not know Him yet? as Lord, as Savior, as Christ? Know this about Jesus. He has compassion for you. He's not waiting for you to figure it out. He's not waiting for you to clean your life up before He starts to care for you. But right now, today, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, loves you and desires for you to be fed and filled spiritually. He desires today for you to have a right and reconciled, a justified relationship to God, His Father, your Father, our Creator. And He's made a way for you to be right with God out of His own compassion according to the will of God by dying for your sins and then being raised again from the dead. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God has demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies to God, Christ died for us. Jesus doesn't wait for people to be pitiable or lovable before He loves them and has compassion on them. So it is true for you today, friend. If you don't yet know Christ, know this. Christ loves you. And Christ wants you to have a love-filled, restored relationship to God, your Father and Creator. We learn third from this repeated event. We learn that 
The disciples are slow in the uptake. We learn that Jesus has compassion for those who don't yet know him. And we learn again that Jesus is bread in the wilderness for hungry people. We learn this all over again. The truth and the point of the manna in the wilderness for the Israelites who were brought out of slavery in Egypt. The truth about the manna, the point of the manna, is all the more true and clear when we see it in Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, there in the Old Testament, says that God gave people, gave the Israelites manna in the wilderness so they would know that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is, as John in his gospel says so clearly, Jesus is the Word of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus gives bread in abundance to these people in the wilderness, again, not to fill their bellies only, but to draw them in to see that He is their ultimate spiritual provision. Jesus gives bread in the wilderness place, not just so that people will leave full, but so that people will see that physical hunger is not their their only or greatest need. This morning, friends, knowing that Jesus is the bread of life, that He alone satisfies, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, certainly not to the exclusion of Jesus, who is Himself the Word of God. This morning, Christian, I encourage you, I exhort you, find your satisfaction in Christ who is, as he says, the very bread of life himself. We read it in our call to worship this morning from John 6. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread. There's satisfaction. There is fullness. There is abundance of life in Jesus. There is plenty of him to fill you to overflowing spiritually, to give you a kind and quality of life, to to, to steal a phrase from Tom Fisher, a kind and quality of life that only God can give in Christ. There's satisfaction in Him for every longing of your soul. There is fullness of Him, filling from Him for every empty corner of your heart. He is the bread of life meant to fill you to overflowing. But here's the catch. You have to feast on Him. You cannot have the life that Jesus intends to give unless You take him in. Jesus, in John chapter 6, after he feeds the the multitude, the 5,000, the next day the crowd comes back for another meal, and Jesus calls them on it. He says, you're you're not here for me. You're here because you had your bellies filled yesterday. You're here for a free lunch two days in a row. And then Jesus says something really Sounds really crazy to the person who's just listening to Jesus on the superficial level. In John chapter 6, Jesus says to the crowd, he says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And immediately, the crowd that had their bellies filled the first day, hearing Jesus say, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, they all leave, saying, This dude's crazy. He's calling us to cannibalism. Let's go get lunch somewhere else. Jesus then turns to his disciples, to the 12, and he says to them, are you guys going to go too? Are you going to follow with this crowd after what I just said, this really controversial thing? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do now, disciples? And Peter, God bless him, sometimes he just nails it. Other times, his whole foot in his mouth, right? I mean, he's up to his knee, foot in his mouth. But this time, Peter nails it. He says to Jesus, where else would we go? 
Lord, you alone have the words of life. Peter understands there's life in no one but Jesus. He may not understand it all yet. Jesus hasn't died and been raised, uh, died for sins and been raised from the grave yet, but Peter gets at least this much that Jesus is life. Where else would we go, Lord? And also, I know you're not asking me to eat your body, but you're asking me to feast on all that you have to give to drink all the living water that you supply to take in not just what you say and not just what you do, but to take in you, Lord, and to have life there. Friends, there is satisfaction in Christ for all who seek it. He is himself the bread of life. He is himself living water. There is in him plenty to fill all who come to him in faith to overflowing, but you must feast on him. Are you feasting on him? Are you in His Word regularly? Are you in fellowship with other believers who are going to call you to repentance of sin and faithful obedience to Jesus? Are you praying with and for other brothers and sisters in the family of faith? Are you worshiping regularly, singing songs of the gospel along with so many other saints week by week? Are you saying no to some things in your life so you can say yes to more of Jesus? Are you feasting on him regularly? Are you drinking in him, drinking him in? There's satisfaction in Christ, but you must feast on him. The feeding of the 4,000 is like the feeding of the 5,000 in that it shows us that the disciples are still slow. We all need repetition. Teaches us again that Jesus has compassion on people who are far from God. And that's an important truth that we need to hear more than once, maybe more than twice. It also teaches us one more time that there's satisfaction in Jesus if we'll come to him in faith and feast on relationship with him. But why is feeding 4,000 not like feeding 5,000? We have two events, some similar, some parallel sort of details between Mark 6 and Mark 8, but there are some significant and important differences. Why is feeding the 4,000 not like feeding the 5,000? We see in some ways that these two events are very different. We looked at some similarities. Let's look at some differences. First, in Mark chapter 6, the crowd had been with him just one day. Here in Mark chapter 8, the crowd has been with him for three days. Time, the amount of time that the crowd has been with Jesus is longer. Jesus says in verse 3 of Mark 8 that he cannot send the crowd away. If they do, they'll faint along the way. But in Mark chapter 6, verse 36, he tells the disciples to send the crowd away. So in one instance, Jesus says, I can't send them away. In the other instance, prior, he told the disciples to send them away. Here in our present episode, Mark chapter 8, the disciples produce seven loaves and a few small fish. That detail is different from Mark chapter 6, where we see there are five loaves and two small fish. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus prays twice. He prays once to bless the bread. He prays a second time to bless the fish. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus prays just once, and then everything is distributed. And then at the end of each episode, there are leftovers taken over. We saw that. And because we're Baptists, we like when there's food left over that we get to take home. In the first episode, Mark chapter 6, 12 baskets were gathered. In the second episode, Mark chapter 8, seven baskets are gathered. But there's another difference that doesn't quite come through here in our English translations. In both places, the word basket is used. But these are different kinds of baskets. The, the, the Greek word that Mark wrote to describe the basket were, were two different Greek words. In Mark chapter 6... He, he, the word for basket is the Greek word kofinos, 
which means a, a small wicker basket, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 inches or so in diameter, just woven together. And Jews of the day would carry this kind of with them throughout the day. It's a handy little sort of tool to have to throw stuff in to carry around. 12 relatively small baskets that are gathered up. Here in Mark chapter 8, there's only seven baskets that are gathered up, but the word for basket is different. It's the word sporus, which is like not a small basket that you would weave together out of wicker and carry with you every day. Sporus is, this is a hamper, like a clothes basket, right? That you could put a child in, okay? That, not that you would put a child in, but a child would fit. Seven, so in the first, 12 small baskets are gathered. In the second, seven large laundry hampers of leftovers are taken over. In the first episode, we see that there are 5,000 men who are fed. And if their wives and children are with them, maybe the total crowd was 15 to 20,000. And we're not told that their wives and children are with them. So we're not sure if there are that many uh, present there that day. But if there are, maybe upward to 15 or 20,000. Here in the second episode, 4,000 people total. Uh, they said that there were 4,000 people in the group. And so not just men, but probably men, women, and children all together. There's a number, of different, a number of differences between the two scenes, but there's one difference that stands out as the most important. The feeding of the 5,000 takes place in Galilee, where most of the people who lived there were largely Jewish. They were of Jewish background. They were people of the Old Covenant, people who worshiped the God of the Bible. Here now, on the other side of the lake in the Decapolis, the 4,000 who are gathered around Jesus are very, very, very likely not Jews, but Gentiles. Not covenant people, but strangers and aliens. Not people who are considered the children of God because they're under the covenant of God, but people who are outside of the covenant of God, far away from Him. From these differences, we learn a number of things, but primarily, first of all, these are two distinct events. This is not Mark hitting copy and paste. This isn't Matthew hitting copy and paste. This isn't a, a, a redoubling of an event just told slightly differently. Some scholars have assumed that because this feeding is recorded only in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, gospel not in Luke and John, that uh, there is some sort of error in copying or, or some sort of oral tradition made its way into the gospel twice. But the number of people who are fed the kinds of differences that we see in between these two events, and the very fact that Jesus will later mention in Mark chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, the fact that Jesus mentions two feedings demonstrate that these are two separate events. Jesus really did feed two different crowds, a Jewish crowd of 5,000 men, a Gentile crowd of 4,000 people. What are we to apply with just this knowledge? Because I think it does matter as more than just a fact that we keep in our book of facts that we can pull out in Sunday school to show how much we know. And the first aspect of application here for us is, is an exhortation, an encouragement for us to read our Bibles closely and to take note, take note of when we see things twice. Take note of when you see things three times. Uh, my uh, youth minister growing up used to tell us we would often do Bible memory work together as students memorizing verses and uh, things like that from, from Scripture, memorizing t Ten Commandments and that sort of thing. And we would spend like 10 minutes every Sunday morning before we had our, uh, our, our Bible study lesson together, just re uh, repeating and, and memorizing stuff. And he would always ask us before we started, how do we learn anything? And the answer was repetition. 
only it was not just repetition. The answer was repetition, repetition, repetition. We learn things by going over them multiple times. So when we see in Scripture something mentioned more than once, let's read it more than once. You may be even noticing now that this point of application is similar, almost a repetition of a previous point of application earlier in the sermon. And that's not by accident either. When you come to things twice in the Bible, when you read a scene that you feel like you've read before already, resist making the assumption that because you've read the Bible once, you've read this story once, even as, an, an, even as, as you may be reading an easy or relatively easy to understand part of the Bible, resist the temptation to assume that you've already understood it perfectly. Resist the temptation to say, oh, I've already read this, I'll just skip on to what's next. Press back against that. Because if it's in there more than once, it's God's intention for you to read it more than once. Keep digging. Keep, keep steeping your life in the Word of God. I'm, I'm a coffee drinker. I'm not a tea drinker. Sometimes I drink tea, especially as like the weather gets cold and dry and I lose my voice every Sunday. I have to drink tea. And I've, I've learned this about tea. The longer you steep it, the stronger it gets. Right? The longer you leave the, the tea bag, the tea leaves, in the tea, the stronger the tea gets. There's some kinds of tea you don't want to let it steep too long because then it gets bitter, but just forget that part of the analogy. Strong tea has to steep a long time. And there's some kinds of tea that, that, that you have to let it seep or steep for a long time to get all the fullness of flavor out of it because the tea leaves that are in it or maybe the dried fruit that's been placed in there or whatever it is that's in the tea bag needs more time in hot water to release all of its flavor and maybe vitamins and other nutrients if there are those. It needs that time in there to steep. So friend, as you come to things in God's Word that you think you've seen before, don't skip over it, steep in it. Ste soak in it for a minute. Say, okay, God, here I am again. I'm pretty sure I just read this a chapter and a half ago, but here we are again. So I'm going to sit here because there's more in, there's more of you I'm meant to absorb by seeing this twice. There's more of Christ I'm meant to see more clearly by seeing, by sitting in this twice. There's more that you need to draw out of me. Maybe, maybe in the sense of there's more sin you need to, to draw out of me in repentance and confession. Maybe there's more love and character of Christ you're intending to draw out of me as I steep in your word. But whatever it is, God, I'm going to sit here in it till your work is done. Keep digging, keep steeping, keep asking helpful questions of the Word over and over and over again so that you might understand it more deeply, more clearly, more truly. Not that you come away from God's Word thinking something completely different about a relatively repeated event than you thought about the first time. Like when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he provides bread in the wilderness for hungry people. Jesus feeds the 4,000. He's a nice guy that likes doing nice things. No, there's way more than that. In this, there's way more than to, to it in this repeated feeding. Read your Bibles closely. Take note when you see things twice. Here's a secondary sort of application for us. This isn't on the screen, but you can write it down if you want to. We need to learn to enjoy reviewing, not just repeated events in Scripture, but we also need to learn to enjoy reviewing important doctrines from Scripture and not take them for granted. Doctrine is not a bad word. A doctrine is a way of speaking about summarized teachings, a summarized understanding from God's Word about who God is, about what Christ is like, about what redemption, what rescue from sin does for us. There are important doctrines from Scripture that we need to review more than once. It's easy to take things for granted, especially if you've grown up in church. 
I've been in church pretty much my whole life. I've been a follower of Jesus since I was six years old. There are a lot of things I assume that I know about God that I'm, that I'm reminded when I come across things again in His Word that I don't, I don't really know them as clearly, as deeply, as truly as I ought to. There are some things I take for granted and I need to review again. Yeah. It's easy to say when we come across repeated events, repeated themes, repeated motifs in Scripture, it's easy to say, yeah, 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 I get it. I get it. Jesus does miracles. Yeah, 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 I get it. Jesus loves people. Yeah, 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 I get it. Jesus died for sins and rose again. What else? It's easy for us when we've heard those things multiple times to say, yeah, 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 I get it. Let's move on and miss the whole point of what it is that we're being taught by those things, which is the second thing that we observe from these differences, that Jesus cares in abundance for unexpected people. The first thing we learn from the difference is, is that we need to read our Bibles closely and take note when we see things twice. The second thing we need to learn is that Jesus cares in abundance for unexpected people. Yes, really, even Gentiles. Yes, really, even people outside of God's covenant, old covenant people of Israel. Remember, the most important differences between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, the most important difference is that the 5,000 were Jews, the second, the 4,000, are Gentiles. They're Gentiles. Let me put this in a different context. Let's say you lived uh, in the Middle East. Let's say you, you were a citizen of Israel with all that's going on today in the conflict between Israel and Hamas. It would be like saying... When Jesus feeds the 5,000, he fed Israelites. And then a chapter and a half later, in chapter 8, and then Jesus saw a group of 4,000 members of Hamas, and he fed them too. Right? We say Jew and Gentile, we're like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. Jew and Gentile, yeah, no big deal. Jesus loves lots of people. No, 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 no. Jews and Gentiles in Jesus' day were as relationally conflicted in some sense, and perhaps not with the same degree of violence as we see today, but as relationally conflicted as the nation, as the geopolitical nation of Israel and Hamas. There's that kind of conflict between the two. So when we see Jesus in the Decapolis feeding 4,000, we are meant to go, wait a minute, what now? It's just one thing to say he loves people who are not Jews. It's one thing to maybe heal one or two along the way. But now he's feeding all of them? He's sharing in table fellowship with these people who don't eat kosher and don't worship our God and don't follow all of our laws. He's doing that for them? Yep. Really. Really. This is meant to be a startling episode to, to show us that Jesus really does care in abundance for unexpected people. Yes, really. I'm telling you, even Gentiles. Now, here's the really good news about that. My guess is relatively few of us have Jewish ethnic heritage or came from a Jewish background that, that we grew up, uh, grew up as, as Jews. And for the majority of us who did not grow up as Jews, who don't have a Jewish ethnic or Jewish heritage uh, in our family lineage, we are Gentiles. We're Gentiles. We're the strangers and aliens that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3. The strangers and the aliens that Christ by his death and resurrection brings near as part of the new covenant people of God. The really good news that Jesus cares in abundance for unexpected people, yes, even Gentiles, means that he really cares in abundance for you and for me and for those who have Jewish background and Jewish heritage to make for himself a new people 
not of one ethnic background, but of all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all people groups. Jesus really cares in abundance for unexpected people. He really cares in abundance for people who are strung out on heroin, sitting outside the needle exchange on Niederstrasse in Frankfurt. He really does care for those people. And he really is ready to care in abundance for them if they'll feast on him in faith. And knowing this about our Savior and knowing the love with which he has loved us, Gentiles, far from God's covenant before we came to him in Christ, we ought to, as followers of Jesus, hold up Christ's compassion, and not just for the world to see, but hold up Christ's compassion as a mirror to the state of our own hearts. We often say, I think, I, I think I've often said or said enough that it ought to count as often now, that God's Word is like a mirror. Now, sometimes we like to hold God's Word up like a mirror to the world so as to say, look how bad y'all are, and look how much we're different from you. And, and God's Word does work that way. I would say, please don't ever do it with that attitude. God in His Word gives us a right to speak truth into a world that denies it, but His, His Word and the fruit of the gospel does not give us a right to be a jerk. Sometimes we like to hold the word up as a Bible to the world to say, see how bad you are. But oftentimes we need to hold up God's word as a mirror the other direction to ourselves and not to see how good we look because the Bible almost as a mirror to my soul never tells me how good I'm doing. It always shows me how much I've still fallen short. It's always shown me like how, how much sin is still left in this decrepit heart of mine to repent of. It's always showing me, even as we saw last week, like how much of my heart is still not given over to Christ's lordship. His word shows me a lot of bad things about myself. But do you know what his word as a mirror also shows me all the time? It's still how great Christ's compassion is for sinners like me. Amen. It keeps showing me that. It'll show me all the things I've yet to repent of. And at the same time, it'll give me all the assurance that comes with the gospel that if I repent in continued faith in Jesus, there's still forgiveness. That if I continue submitting my life to Jesus, recognizing the things that are bad, bringing them, bringing those sinful things in, in me to the throne of his grace by hope and faith in Christ, that he'll keep making me new. He'll keep transforming me. Not so that I'm the best version of Stephen that I can be, but he'll keep transforming me and so that I'm the most Christ-like version of Stephen I can be. We need to hold up Christ's compassion as a mirror to the state of our own hearts, knowing that he cares for unexpected people. Ought to convict the heart of the hard-hearted insider. If your default position is to drive by certain places in town, see people on corners of the street or maybe homeless encampments or people where, or areas of town where you know, there was a lot of drugs and violence and other things going on, if your inclination is to drive as fast as you can through that part of town so you don't have to be around those folks, perhaps God's word and the compassion of Christ would convict you to say, maybe slow down a little and pray for the people you're passing by rather than looking out your windows and saying, if those folks would just get their stuff together. Now listen, I know it's a temptation in your heart to do it because it's a temptation in my heart to do it to drive by rows of tents of homeless people under certain overpasses and stuff, and to think, if these guys would just get their stuff together, man, if our city would just do something different about these people, and never, for even a, a, a blink of an eye, not, not even that, that length of time, to stop and think, Lord, there's a broken person in that tent right now. A broken person who can only be filled, who can only be fixed, who can only be bound up, 
by the healing power of Christ. I may never meet them, but God, they need to know Jesus. And so do something in their life. Bring someone along their path. God, when I come into contact with someone, give me compassion for them. A lot of people just drive by, never say anything, never do anything, never offer a prayer. God, help me to do that. I think Jesus might. So God, grow me in Christ-like compassion. If you're tempted to be a hard-hearted insider in faith, let this text of Scripture, Jesus showing compassion, yes, for even those kind of people, let it drive you to compassion, yes, for those kind of people. And friend, if you happen to find yourself on the outsides of things, like you feel like you're, you're maybe an outcast in society, or maybe you've been in churches before, and I pray it's never been the case when you've been in our gathering, but maybe if you've even been in our gathering and you've thought, I don't fit with these people, my life's not together quite like theirs is. I, I don't know if I belong there. If you're ever tempted to think that, friend, let me encourage you today to know this, that we as followers of Jesus, we're not perfect. We're trying to follow him faithfully. And sometimes we need to be reminded of sins that we have yet to repent of. But that doesn't make our Jesus, our Savior, any less compassionate for you. Amen. If you find yourself as a downcast outcast, know this that for all of the failings of God's people, there's still a Savior, Jesus, who, who's still loving you completely and perfectly, yeah. who will not let you down. And I pray that, that He'll give you the grace to forgive some hard-hearted insiders like us sometimes, but also that more than that, that He will give you grace to believe on Him for salvation, to find your home and fullness of your soul and your heart in Him alone. Yes, as followers of Jesus, we're not perfect, but our Savior still is. So I encourage you today, look to Him. Don't look to us as the church for hope and healing because at some point we'll disappoint you. Yeah. Friend, if you're here and you're, you're, you're a member of our church, you're attending our church because you think I'm, I'm a great pastor, I'm a great preacher, and that's why you're here at this church, listen, you, you should probably leave now because I'll disappoint you soon enough. But if you're here because this is a place where broken but repenting and faithful people are worshiping the only perfect one who's not the dude standing behind this pulpit, but the only perfect one who died for sins and rose again, if you're here to worship with others, the only perfect one, Jesus the Christ, who has compassion for all kinds of people and calls all kinds of people to repent of sin and believe in him to be made whole and restored to God, well, then you're in a good place. So we've seen Jesus do this thing twice. Feed a great multitude. Once for those who had seen a great feeding in the wilderness in their people's history, and now a second time for people who never knew it at all. Jesus really is God's Christ. He really is God's ordained Redeemer for all kinds of people. His compassion is for Jew and Gentile. His power to fill and to feed souls to overflowing is on display for any who will come to Him by faith in Him. So the question is, have you feasted on Him for life? Are you feasting on Him for life? And if we have said yes to each of these, then are our lives showing the fruit of it? If we are, if we are feasting on Jesus in faith, is the compassion of Jesus for all peoples observable in our lives? If we are imbibing Christ through His Word and in our prayer and fellowship and worship together, then is it clear to others that Jesus is quenching our spiritual thirsts and not the empty gods of our world and our culture's contriving? If it is true that we are what we eat, is it demonstrable that we are full of Jesus? If God has seen fit to show us these truths, now twice in His Word, maybe more, 
then his repetition is not for any vain or empty purpose. So let us pay close attention to what the Word is teaching. And with love for Jesus, let us obey it. Will you pray with me?